Morning, everybody. Good to see you. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, part of our teaching team. And as we study the book of Acts, what we're studying is the progression of the movement of Christianity uh, from a small group of believers in Jerusalem uh, to Samaria. That's what we're looking at today, which is kind of a region nearby there, and uh, then to the ends of the earth. And so that's what the book of Acts is, uh, is doing, is telling that history. And so I want to just imagine something together here for a moment, all right? So I want us to imagine that we are the only Christians in the world. So that's not true, obviously. I don't believe that. But imagine that, that this group of people here in this room were the only Christians on earth. This is about two to three times the size of the number of people who were praying in the upper room uh, before the Holy Spirit came and they began to do God's mission. So imagine that it's just us. We're the only people. There's no churches down the street. You didn't drive by any A-frames on the way here. You've never heard the word megachurch. You don't know what a missionary is. Uh, You've never heard of Billy Graham. Uh, There's not Christian radio and it's definitely not positive and encouraging. And just all that stuff doesn't exist. You're the only Christians on planet Earth. And Jesus tells you, I want you to be my witnesses in the Southeast Valley, in Arizona, and Mexico, and to the ends of the Earth. What would we have to have in order to be successful in that? What are the things we would need? I mean, just imagine this. This is what the early church was facing at the beginning of Acts. Jesus saying, you're going to go all over the world with this good news, right? And they're looking around at each other, like, look around and be like, us? Right, I always imagine Jesus when he's giving uh, his uh, great commission at the end of Matthew, right? And there's like 11 guys there and he's like, you know, go into all the world, 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 and make disciples. And they're looking around like, who else is coming? Because us, right? Imagine that. What would we need? Well, I think there's at least five things that we would need. First, we would definitely need God's power, right? Because we're looking to go like us. We're just ordinary, regular, not that impressive people. I mean, even the really smart and impressive people here, like in the grand scheme, we're pretty average. All right. So whoever you are, uh, so, so we need God's power in a big way. We would also need every member ministry. We would need every person that was part of this group to, to, to take the mission seriously. If, if Christianity was going to spread beyond this room, it couldn't happen just through a couple of particularly motivated or gifted or uh, expressive people. It'd have to, everyone would have to play a role. Now, not everyone would play the same role, but everyone would have to play a role. What else would we need? We would need significant ability to cross barriers. And even you just look around in this room, there are a lot of white people in here, which would mean we'd have to cross some, some racial barriers. Uh, most people in here are probably uh, Americans, natively at least. So we'd have to cross some kind of ethnic and national boundaries. There'd be language barriers we'd have to cross, right? Because my guess is most of us speak English, a few of you might speak another thing, but, but we'd have to cross some barriers, right? So we need God's power, we need every member ministry, we need the ability to cross barriers. We'd also need, here's another thing, genuine conversions. Like we, in this room, would have to actually be Christians. Because it would be very challenging to convince someone else to become something we are not. 
right? So we would have to be actual, real, genuine believers in Jesus Christ. And then the last thing that we'd need, and this might be as big a thing as any that we'd need, is we would need God to nudge us out of the nest, right? Think about this. We've, many of us, built a home here, built a life here. Your work's here. Your family is here or friends who have become like family, right? Some of you are like, oh man, I couldn't, get, I couldn't wait to get out of here. Send me, here I am, send me. But, but a lot of us, like, it would be pretty tricky to leave. And, and we would need God to somehow send us out. Well, here's the thing. All of those are the things that had to happen. Not just if we were the only Christians in the world, but for the time when that was actually the case, that there were about 120 Christians in Jerusalem, and all of those things that had to happen were things that happened. And we start to see some significant uh, aspects of those in this particular passage in Acts chapter 8 that Seth read for you just a moment ago, because this is the place where for the first time, the gospel significantly leaves Jerusalem and goes into a new place. It goes into Samaria. Jesus had said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that he, uh, his people would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Samaria, just so you know, was very close by Jerusalem, very close by Judea, but it was very culturally different. The Samaritans were people who uh, basically were a kind of, they were considered kind of a mixed race group, which in, in Jerusalem was, and in Israel was a big problem because the races were essentially Assyrians who had been the uh, Jews' enemies and then Jews who had stayed behind. So they were kind of this ethnic outsider group. They also had a different way of worship. They had a different temple. They had all this different stuff. And so for the gospel to go to them now signifies that this Christian movement is not just for Jews and it's not just in Jerusalem. It's actually going to spread all over the world. And the things that we would need are the things that we see. God gave what they needed. So here's what I want to do this morning, and this is not typically how I always handle uh, the sermons, but, but what I want to do is just kind of walk uh, chunk by chunk through this part that we read just a moment ago and just explain it. There's a lot of little things in there that I'd love to spend more time on that I'm not going to, I'm, but I'm going to try to give a little explanation just to kind of help us make sure we understand what's going on. And then I want to, at the end, spend some extended time of answering a, a, a significant, crucial question that comes up at the end of this passage, okay? So that's where we're gonna go. We're just gonna walk through it and then hone in on this question that uh, comes out of what we see at the end. All right, you ready? All right, let's pray. Father, we need uh, your help. We need your power. We need you to open the eyes of our hearts and give us understanding of the wonderful things in your word. God, I pray that as we uh, look at this that we would um, embrace the calling that that earliest church embraced that we would see ourselves as part of that and the continuation of that and that uh, you would use this text to make that possible for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, let's first look at verses one to three. This is where we finished last week after the uh, execution of Stephen. Stephen was one of the followers of Jesus who was executed in Jerusalem. It says this in verse one, and Saul, who's gonna become the apostle Paul, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. 
Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So remember, Jesus had told him, hey guys, listen, you're going to be my witnesses. I want you to go into all nations. Jesus actually, at the end of all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's a place where Jesus tells his disciples to go and to preach and to share this good news. And yet what we see here in Acts 8, at the beginning of Acts 8, is what it actually took for that to start happening. They didn't go. They stayed. And so God actually had to nudge them out of the nest by allowing this persecution to happen. Do you see it in verse one? There arose a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Before they had just threatened them, then they had, uh, they, they had kind of beaten them. Now they're starting to kill them and arrest them. And as a result, in verse one, it says they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, the apostles were staying uh, home in Jerusalem, probably because most of this persecution, it seems like, was probably targeted at the uh, Hellenistic, the Greek-speaking Jews. And so that persecution is happening, and it's actually through the pain of persecution that the gospel mission spreads. Isn't that interesting? Or if we had just waited for you know, everyone to just get motivated to go, it didn't happen. God needed to use the painful experience in order to accomplish his purposes. Listen, listen, look up here. God does not waste our pain. I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know what opposition you're facing. Maybe it's health, maybe it's at work, maybe it's with family who are opposed to your beliefs or the way you're raising your family. Uh, maybe it's just people in general who, who just seem to be against the things that you love. I don't know what you're facing. But God doesn't waste our pain. God turns ugly things, difficult things, painful things into beautiful things. That's what God does. And that's what God did here. He took the pain of this persecution, the pain of Stephen's death, the pain of people coming against the church, and he's actually going to use it to, to paint something much more beautiful. I saw uh, an illustration of this um, some months ago when I just saw an ad. I, I haven't ever actually seen the show, so I'm not endorsing the show, but the, the ad was for a show called Bad Ink. And what they do with this uh, particular show is they specialize in taking tattoos that are really ugly and kind of redoing them so that you don't have to have that horrible tattoo on you. All right, so here's, here's one example uh, that I saw. Uh, this is a, a, one that they did. That is actually a tattoo that this young lady got of her grandmother after she died. Apparently her grandmother was a ghost or a demon. I don't know, right? But look at that, like... That's really ugly, right? So she went to them and said, like, I wanted to honor my grandma, but it looks like I, you know, looks like grandma had a beard, and I, I feel like I need to do something. And so, so here's what they did. They, they turned her grandma into an angel, right? So they took this bad thing and made it into a beautiful thing. Next thing that I saw was a guy who uh, decided to propose to his girlfriend this way. That's his thigh, by the way, it's a little dark there. I don't know if you can read it, but it says, Nina, will you marry me? And Mary is spelled M-E-R-R-Y, like Merry Christmas. And uh, it turns out that this gentleman and Nina didn't work out, right? And so he had a misspelled proposal to the wrong woman on his thigh. 
And so he went to these folks and they turned this ugly thing into something beautiful. A cactus or something. <laughs> Whatever that is. And some of you are like, see, that's why God says you shouldn't get a tattoo. And I don't, I'm not saying that. I don't know if you should get a tattoo. I do know if you get a tattoo, you should spell it right. And you shouldn't make it look, make grandma look like a demon, okay? But, but, but what they do is they take something ugly and they turn it beautiful. That's what God does. That's what God did here. It's actually an incredible story in kind of modern church history of God doing this very same thing. In 1949, uh, there were lots of missionaries in China, Christian missionaries who were telling people about Jesus and uh, leading some people to faith in Christ. And the government came in and kicked out all of the Christian missionaries. And it was panic. What are we going to do? How's the faith going to go on? What's going to happen? And you know what happened? The Chinese Christians who had kind of been sitting on their duffs and letting the missionaries just do all the work, they said, well... It's on us now. And now there are 30 to 40 times as many Christians in China as there were before. Why? Because this is what God does. We go through the pain. We don't like the pain. The pain hurts. The pain's hard. But, but what might God want to do in you and through you because of that pain? Next, we look at verses four through eight. It says, verse four, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds being with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Now, this narrative begins to really focus in on this individual named Philip. And uh, this story talks about Philip's ministry to the bunch of the Samaritans. The next story in Acts chapter 8 that we'll look at next week is going to talk about his ministry to an individual person. And so we'll talk more about why Philip is highlighted here. But, but notice verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Get this. Who, who was scattered? What did it say? Who was scattered in verse 1? Class? Who was scattered in verse 1? Everyone except the apostles. So what happens in verse 4? Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Here's what happened. The, the gospel spread not through these superhero apostles, but through average, ordinary people speaking the word of God everywhere they went. That's how it happened. This is every member ministry, right? That's what we said. That was one of the things we would need. We would need every member ministry. Some people have compared the church to a football game where there are 22 people who desperately need a rest and 70,000 people who desperately need exercise. <laughs> and in unhealthy churches, that's true. But not in this church. For this early church, they, they were all preaching the word. And, and Philip here, again, he's highlighted, but he's just one of a number of people who were doing this ministry. God was working in incredible ways. And I love what it says in verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. Do you know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of joy? It allows you to be connected to the God who made you. It allows you to have your sins forgiven, to have a new hope, to have a new life, to have a new power within you for your relationships. That brings joy. 
And that's just the beginning of what happened. Look at verse nine. But there was a man named Simon, and listen to Simon's background, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. Now this, this kind of magic, this isn't like, hey, pick a card magic. Uh, this was like sorcery kind of magic, which you'll see here in a moment. He amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. So he walked around telling people, look at me. I'm important. And it worked because verse 10, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. So the people saw what he did, they heard what he said, and they went, wow, this guy, this is the power of God. He's the power of God incarnate, sort of. Verse 11, and they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. This is awesome, right? Isn't this so cool? I mean, God is making this ugly tattoo into something beautiful, right? And, and the gospel is going, and even the guy who amazed everyone, right? Simon the amazer is now amazed because he sees that the power of God working through God's people is even more spectacular than anything he had. Right, and so all these people are believing, they're expressing their faith in Jesus, they're being baptized, wow, this is incredible. And then it starts to get kind of interesting. Verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now I want to spend just a moment, I'm not going to spend as much time as we could on this, but I, I want to just spend a moment here because uh, this is a passage a lot of the commentators and people who study this and preach this and, and teach this have to wrestle with because back in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost and they all said, what should we do? And he said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Right? The indication is that when you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. But here it seems like there's something different. Did you notice that in verse, 15, uh, in verse 16? For the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this has led people to question, okay, so, so what everyone experienced in Jerusalem in Acts 2 seems to be different than what's being experienced here by the Samaritans in Acts 8. Why? Right there, they believe and receive the Holy Spirit one time. Samaria, they believe first, and then they have to hoof it to Jerusalem to get some of the apostles to come lay their hands on them so that then they can receive the Holy Spirit. Why? What's going on there? There's lots of speculation. There's lots of potential uh, theories. The one that I like the most, that I think makes the most sense because of what you see here and other places in Acts where similar kinds of things happen is that it seems that God does this as a gift to the church. Because remember how I told you the Jews viewed the Samaritans? 
right? They hated them. There was racial animosity. There was religious animosity, right? The, the, the people could not stand the Samaritans. In fact, let me just show you this. Uh, this is from Luke chapter 9. Uh, this is during Jesus' ministry. Uh, when they have some a ministry, they go through Samaria, and you see a little bit of the reaction of some of the disciples in Luke uh, chapter 9. Here's what it says. And Jesus sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So he goes to Samaria. The people didn't really embrace him. Verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, uh, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. That's the Jewish attitude. That's even the disciples' attitude towards Samaria. Hey, Jesus, we have an idea. We've actually been thinking about this for a long time. We would love to do this. I can't actually think of anything more entertaining and enjoyable than smiting all the Samaritans. Is this an opportunity? That was the Jewish attitude toward the Samaritans, right? So just imagine, right, just imagine uh, the, the apostles are back home. The rest of the church is scattered, and they're in Samaria, Right? And imagine that, that the Samaritans had believed and received the Holy Spirit. And the report comes back to the apostles. What do you think the apostles would have thought? Come on. No way. Not really. And they would have always thought of the Samaritans as kind of the JV Christians. And so it seems like perhaps in God's mercy and in God's grace... But by actually separating belief and receiving the Spirit, what happened was it gave the apostles a chance to come down there and actually see God really is at work here. And it was a unifying thing for the sake of the church. It made it where they realized, wow, we all have the same Spirit. We all have the same Holy Spirit. God is gracious to us. And it was a gift to the Samaritans who were always viewed as second class. It was a way for them to have the affirmation of God. Listen, you are not second class. You drink of the same spirit that Peter and John do. And notice who is sent by the apostles from the original group of disciples to go down there. Peter and John. John was the one who said, hey, you want to smite them? And now he's coming down, humbled by the work of God, praying for them to receive the Spirit. See, these barriers have to be crossed for the gospel to continue. These barriers of language, these barriers of race, these barriers of religion, these barriers of ethnicity, all these things, and God is breaking those things down through his people. Well, finally, we look at the end of this passage. They lay their hands on them, verse 17, they receive the Holy Spirit, and this next section is what really raises the question for us that we are going to focus on here, beginning in verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, this is such a strong rebuke, Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. 
And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Verse 25 sums it all up. Says the disciples returned to Jerusalem. They preached the gospel all along the way. So, so here's what you have with this sort of case study of Simon. You have Simon who, right, this amazing worker, uh, Simon the Amazing, even he believes, it said, and even he is baptized, it said in verse 13, and even he is following Philip around, and even he is amazed at all the signs and wonders, right? Like, wow, God seems to have really worked in Simon the Magician, and then Simon the Magician sees a, a trick that he hasn't been able to do, which is the laying on of hands and giving the Holy Spirit. And he's like, can I do that? Do you take cash or credit? Right, he wants that power. And and Peter rebukes him in the harshest terms, right? May your silver perish with you. You don't have a lot in this matter. Your heart's not right before God. He calls it wicked. He says you're in the gall of bitterness, in the bond of iniquity. You're a prisoner to sin. Pray, repent, right? This is, there's a lot at stake here, Simon. And it has raised the question, was Simon a genuine Christian? Was he a genuine Christian? Because after all, look at verse 13. It says he believed, it said he was baptized, he was amazed, he was participating in all this. But then the way Peter talks to him, man, it does not look like he's a Christian. His heart's not right before God. He's trying to buy God off. So so was Simon a Christian? Now the commentators and the scholars and all the people, they debate about it, right? This is a big question. Was Simon really a Christian? Um, It's hard to say. I think you could... I think the case is stronger, as I'll show you in a moment, that he wasn't than that he was. But it's not entirely clear. And and I I wonder if Luke, who often likes to sort of leave stories open-ended, I wonder if he's doing that as a way to say, hey, reader, are you like Simon? Are you a real Christian? And so that's the next question. How can you know whether you are a genuine Christian? Because here's the thing for sure that you see from this story of Simon, is you shouldn't read the story of Simon and be like, that's the guy I want to be like. I want to be the guy who no one's sure if they're a Christian. I want to be the guy who at the funeral people are like, did he believe, did he not? I want to be a tweener. No one wants, we don't want that. And yet, there are a lot of people who, like Simon, think they're Christians, who aren't, or who it's not clear. And so a question becomes, how can you know? How can you know if you're a Christian? Right, some of you, you're here thinking, like, I know I'm not a Christian, and I don't really want to be. Okay, great, we're glad you're here. Some of you are like, I'm probably not a Christian, but I'm not sure. Some of you are like, yeah, I'm a Christian, and you're not. And some of you think, yeah, I'm a Christian, and you are. And here's the thing. I don't have a junior Holy Spirit badge. And we don't have a buzzer on the back of the door that, like, beep, beep, genuine, beep, genuine, beep, eh, right? Like, we don't have one of those, right? So we're talking about your heart before God that only God knows. And yet, how can we 
evaluate ourselves and say, am I a genuine Christian? Get this. When I say genuine, I'm not saying, do I genuinely want to be? That's not the question. You can genuinely want to have a, you know, Picasso painting. You can genuinely think you have a Picasso painting. And if the painting you have is a forge, is a fake, you don't have a genuine Picasso painting. So the question is, do you have genuine faith? And how can you tell? Well, here's what this passage shows us, is this passage shows us some interesting things. First, it shows us a set of evidences that neither prove nor disprove that you have genuine faith. So, so first, it says, here's some things that, that doesn't prove anything. This, you might look to this and think, oh, this is proof, but it isn't. And it doesn't disprove anything. And then it's going to show us, I think, some, some evidences of genuine saving faith. So what are the evidences from this passage that neither prove nor disprove one's faith? So get this. These are all things that this might be part of your story, and it doesn't prove anything. Doesn't mean it's unimportant. Doesn't mean it's not even really meaningful to you. But it doesn't necessarily prove anything. Do you get that? I'm not saying it's not important. It is. But I'm saying it's not proof. Here's the first thing. It's a moment of decision. You may have a moment in your life where you say, I, I know I'm a Christian because I uh, raised my hand or I stood up or I walked forward or I prayed a prayer uh, that somebody kind of instructed me to pray or I even kind of reached a time just on my own where I just kind of committed my life to the Lord, right? And there's all these ways we talk about um, these moments of decision. We talk about them as praying the sinner's prayer. We talk about them as asking Jesus into our heart. We talk about them as surrendering to Jesus as Lord and Savior. We talk about them as responding to an altar call. All those things are, are perfectly fine. They're great, but they don't necessarily prove anything. Look at verse 13. Simon had a moment of decision, didn't he? Even Simon believed right there's something there's some moment where he told people i believe this i want to be in so a moment of decision does not prove nor does it disprove one's faith second thing that doesn't prove or disprove one's faith is baptism being baptized look at verse 13 even simon himself believed and after being baptized he continued with philip so simon was Baptized. Now get this, we're going to look at next week about how the natural response to becoming a true Christian is getting baptized. But here's the interesting thing. Just because you got dunked in the water or sprinkled or christened or however you want to talk about it, just because that happened does not necessarily mean that your heart was changed. We say when we do baptism, baptism is an outward picture of an inward reality. But did the inward reality happen? Maybe, maybe not, but baptism doesn't prove it. So if you're a person that goes, well, I know I'm a Christian because I got baptized. Well, so did Simon. Was he a Christian? Maybe. Just doesn't prove it. Number three, participation in the church community is not evidence that proves or disproves your faith. Right, look at what it says in verse 13. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Right, so it seems like Simon even just had this kind of inside track into Philip. Right? He was participating in this new thing that was happening and doing it with kind of an insider angle because he was close to the leaders. 
right? So participation in the church community, it's a great thing. It's a life-giving thing. It's a helpful thing. It will help you. It will help other people, but it's not proof that you're a Christian. You can't say, well, I go to church a lot, and I'm in a small group, and I serve really faithfully, and therefore, I know for sure I'm a Christian. It's great. It's not unimportant, but it's not proof. Fourth thing is amazement at the work of God. That doesn't prove or disprove anything, right? If you have no amazement at the work of God, you might go, I'm probably not a Christian, right? If you kind of yawn when you hear the stories of how God changes people's lives, you go, yeah, I'm, I'm probably not a Christian. But but Simon was amazed. Do you see it, verse 13? Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Wouldn't you be? And so being amazed at the work of God, being impressed at what God does, is not a guarantee that you have genuine faith. Last evidence that doesn't prove or disprove is conviction over sin. Conviction over sin is that sense of I feel guilty, I feel afraid, I feel ashamed. I, what I did was wrong, what I did was ugly, what I did was, was bad, and I, and I, and I, I regret it, and I, I'm afraid of it, right? That conviction of sin is not necessarily evidence that proves you're a Christian. If you don't have conviction of sin, you're not a Christian. But just having it doesn't mean you are. Look at verse 24. Right after this incredible kind of challenge, uh, semi-threat from Peter, what is Simon's answer? Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. I mean, he feels incredibly bad, it seems. It seems he does not want to all this horrible stuff as a result of his actions to take place. He feels grieved. He feels convicted. He feels guilty. And yet, it's verse 24 that gives uh, pastors and scholars and Bible teachers the most questions because he does not respond the way Peter tells him to respond. Peter says, pray to the Lord. And what does Simon say? You pray for me that none of this will happen. So feeling convicted, feeling afraid of the consequences of sin, not evidence that you're a Christian. So, here's the thing. If these are the things you've been looking at, saying, well, I know I'm a Christian because I made a decision. I know I'm a Christian because I've been baptized. I know I'm a Christian because I've been part of the church. I know I'm a Christian because, man, I just can't believe what God does. I know I'm a Christian because I feel bad about sin. You just need to know, those things don't necessarily mean you have a genuine faith. So what does? Right, this, is, this is not meant to make everyone walk out of here and go, oh. And, and yet, and yet, if you don't have genuine faith, don't you want to know that? So what, what are some evidences of genuine saving faith? And, I, and I, I put in parentheses here some, some evidences. There's more. The Bible talks about others. I'm just going to look at the ones that come out of this passage, okay? So 1 John, if you're wrestling with this, 1 John is a whole book where John says, I'm writing these things so that you would know that you have eternal life. So if you have questions about this whole thing, go to 1 John, read 1 John, ask questions there. There's other places in the scripture that talk about this. But in this passage, there are some evidences of genuine saving faith. The first one, how do you know you have genuine saving faith? There is a transformation of your core identity. 
There's a transformation of your core identity. Who you are, what drives you, what's important to you, how you present yourself. And it doesn't appear that that happens for Simon. Look at how Simon is described starting in verse 9. Uh, there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him. They called him the power of God that's great. Verse 11, and they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. What was Simon's core identity? I'm Simon the amazer. I amaze people. I have powers. I'm great. Right, that was his core identity. Now, if he's a genuine Christian, it seems like that core identity that's, I'm something great, look at me, I need power. It seems like that would shift and say, no, no, no. Jesus is the power of God called great. Let him increase, let me decrease. That seems to be what would happen if there was this core shift. But look at verses 18 and 19. Now when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also. Did Simon's core identity change? Doesn't seem like it. I heard a pastor once who did a lot of college ministry and he said, you know, there was this one college student that uh, seemed to become a Christian. We were all so excited because he had previously been kind of a playboy type guy. He was always kind of hooking up with different people and kind of, you know, it, he was always on this sort of who could he, you know, have some sort of conquest over in a relationship. And then he heard the gospel, he came to one of our events, and he seemed to come to faith. And it was just really, really cool. And then after a few months, what we realized was that he was angling and manipulating in order to become a leader in the ministry. And what this guy, what this pastor said was, he said, I, I realized the guy's core identity hadn't changed. The, the conquest mentality remained unchanged, right? And one, he was trying to have conquest over women and relationships, and the other he was trying to have conquest and power and authority in a ministry. But the core identity was the same. Has your core identity changed? The way you defined yourself, the way you said, this is who I am, this is what matters, this is what I care about, is that changed? If that's changed, that's some evidence that God's really at work in you. Here's the second thing is loving God, not just using God. If you have genuine saving faith, you don't just use God, you love God. Look at verse 20. In verse 20, Peter says this, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. He's saying, Simon, you thought you could use God. You thought you could buy God. You thought you could bribe God. Listen, you don't love God just because he's God. Listen, anybody can marry God for his money. Oh God, I really need help here, please help. Oh God, this thing's really difficult, would you show up for me please? But, but if you pray to God just because you love God, you have genuine saving faith, at least that's one of the indications of it. Here's the third thing that's an evidence of genuine saving faith, is repentance, repentance. Look at verse 22. This is Peter's exhortation to Simon. Repent, therefore, 
of this wickedness of yours. Repent, repent. What, what does it mean to repent? Well, J.I. Packer is a very old man now and a very well-respected theologian. Here's what he says. Uh, J.I. Packer says, repentance is God saying, turn around, face me, and walk toward me. Turn around, right? Your kid is walking off. You say, hey, hey, turn around, face me, come here. That's repentance. Repentance is turning around, facing God, and walking toward him. It's turning away from the direction we were headed, turning toward him, and moving in that direction. That's what repentance is. Repentance is not just guilt or sorrow over sin or over its consequences. Repentance is changing. It's turning, right? It's a gift of God. We pursue it, realizing it's a gift from God, but that's what repentance is. Now listen, some kinds, of, depending on what it is, repentance takes longer and it's harder than others. Right? If I'm walking and you say, turn around, face me, come toward me. That's pretty easy. That's pretty quick. And some sins we repent of and it's just like that. We're walking in this way, turn around, face me, come back. Okay, and that's out of our life. There's other sins. It's more like we're riding a bicycle. And you're riding. Turn around. Okay, hold on a second. It's going to take me a minute. Right? And it takes longer. Imagine if you're trying to turn a car around. It takes longer. Imagine if you're trying to turn a, a ship around. Right? And some of you go, I've got a ship of sin in my life. This pornography that I was exposed to at an early age is a ship in my life. And it is there. And it, it, I'm, oh, it's just, it never, the temptation never seems to lessen. It never seems to go away. It never seems to stop. Okay, well, here's what repentance looks like. It means continuing to turn. So many times people say, well, I'm struggling with sin. And you know what struggling means? Struggling means I gave up. No, that's not struggling. Struggling is fighting. Struggling is saying, I want to turn toward God. I'm, I'm trying to say no. I'm, I'm enlisting the help and the prayer and the encouragement and the accountability and the support of brothers and sisters who will encourage me and help me pursue this repentance because repentance is an evidence of saving faith. If I don't have repentance, if I have just caved in and said, well, you know, everyone's got their struggles, then that might raise questions about whether I'm really saved is repentance part of your life if it, if it is there's a very good chance that you have saving faith and here's the last thing is drawing near to God kind of hit on this already Peter said in verse 22 pray to the Lord pray to the Lord and Simon instead in verse 24 said pray for me. I don't know what it is. I don't know if, 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 if Simon sort of imagined because of sort of his background and his role that he had to use an intermediary, right? Philip's, oh, he's the impressive guy. Peter's the impressive guy. I, I can't really just go straight to God. Sometimes as a pastor, people try to use me or use our other pastors or elders this way as sort of like mini intermediators. Hey, 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 pastor, could you, uh, could you pray one for me? Because uh, I know you have like a direct line. <laughs> Listen, I got the same line you do. And it is through Jesus. It is not through me. It is not through a priest. It is not through a preacher. It is not through a leader. It is through the finished 
work of Jesus Christ. That's how I have access to God. That's how you have access to God. And one of the evidences of genuine saving faith is that you go to God. You don't depend on other people as little false mediators, false saviors. No, you go to God. You draw near to God. You ask God for forgiveness. You ask God for help. You ask God for strength. And God works. So here's the question. Enough about Simon. What about you? Are you a follower of Jesus? Do you have the real thing? This passage is here to help you ask that question. And communion is a moment to reflect on it. So let me pray and Seth will come and lead us in that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of salvation. God, we emphatically believe that we cannot repent our way or work our way or feel bad our way into relationship with you. We have to trust in the finished work of Jesus. And we pray that you would give us that faith and that we could bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. We ask it in Christ's name, amen.